Welcome back to Primer, the podcast about all things Amazon. I'm your host, Alex Press, recording from Brooklyn, where I've just moved back to in the midst of yet another new COVID wave. These society-wide disasters, COVID, but also natural disasters, can't help but place the spotlight back on the people at Amazon who keep things going. I mention natural disasters because I'd be remiss not to mention the absolutely horrible one that happened recently when a tornado ripped through an Amazon facility in Edwardsville, Illinois, killing six workers, at least. The evidence coming out of that tragedy is really horrifying, showing that Amazon's patchwork system of third-party contractors mixed with its relentless drive to keep workers on the job, even in life-threatening weather, pretty directly led to those deaths. It's not the first time. Here in New York, warehouse workers were pushed to stay on the job through flooding and hurricanes not that long ago. But in this case, in Illinois, texts from the Amazon contractors who were delivery drivers working out of that facility suggest that workers were demanding to leave their routes and dispatchers denied them the right to protect themselves, suggesting instead that they might lose their jobs if they did so. There's an investigation ongoing here, but suffice to say, Amazon's constant evasion of responsibility for such workers— Reporting shows that only seven of the more than 100 people who worked out of that location were classified as technically Amazon workers, is what creates situations like this. It's worth adding that this isn't just an Amazon problem. Workers at a Mayfield Consumer Products factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, a few hours south, were told that night that they'd, quote, be more than likely to be fired, end quote, if they left work. There were more than 100 of them working that shift, including seven prisoners, and they worked even after the tornado sirens began sounding. Eight people died on that site, and last I saw, several were missing. A counterexample worth entering into this conversation is the case of UPS workers who were operating out of a small delivery center near the World Trade Center on 9-11. Jacobin has published a piece a few years back by Danny Catch, who's one of those workers, which details how after the first plane hit, they went back to the center to get their stuff and go home, fearing more attacks were on their way but their supervisor told them to keep working. Quote, if you leave, their supervisor said, turn over your ID because you're not coming back. Catch writes that they quickly decided to defy this threat and walk out anyway, and a large reason they felt they could do so was that they're members of Teamsters Local 804. They had a union, so they knew if they were in fact fired, they'd have a chance to defend their actions. That gave them the confidence to risk their jobs to protect their lives. So, aptly... This week, we're returning to the conversation about organizing. I've enjoyed having people with different perspectives on that organizing on this show, making it a form of sorts for talking out this incredibly thorny conversation, what organizing Amazon looks like or even means. This episode, we have someone who brings a lot of experience in the labor movement to the conversation. That person is Alex Hahn, executive editor of Organizing Upgrade, who's worked in the labor movement for more than two decades. Alex recently published a conversation that included a member of Amazonians United and also Wade Rathke, who is chief organizer of ACORN in the U.S. for almost four decades. The purpose of that dialogue that they ran at Organizing Upgrade was to consider lessons from the not-so-long-ago campaign to organize Walmart, which Wade was deeply involved in, and to see how that might inform the current thinking about Amazon. So I thought it'd be good to hear from Alex about that and try to suss out his own views on the matter. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Alex, thanks for coming on Primer. Pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you have two decades or more of experience in the labor movement. And so we want to talk about the various efforts to organize Amazon and also place them in the history of U.S. labor efforts um, over the past few decades, especially. 
Um, and you in particular recently did an interview for Organizing Upgrade um, with Wade Rafke. He helped coordinate an effort between ACORN, SEIU, and the UFCW to organize Walmart. So we haven't had a full episode on Walmart yet, but it comes up a lot that Walmart played the role that Amazon plays now, particularly for the labor movement, but also just in general for the public, right? Walmart was the big bad actor of corporate America. Now, at least according to sort of media coverage and things, you would sort of place Amazon in that role. Um, And so, you know, accordingly, there were efforts to organize Walmart workers. Um, And so this interview you did, you sort of talked about and Wade spoke to the specifics of what that effort looked like. So I guess to start before we get into those specifics, what was the thinking at the time in the labor movement when those campaigns were being launched? Well, I think, frankly, at the time that those campaigns were being launched, I think this was 2003, 2004, there was some willingness among some segment of union leadership to really um, do some experiments um, and to really think about organizing in different ways. Um, and so I think, you know, we've seen, we saw in the aughts, I think multiple generations of attempts at organizing Amazon. Um, and really from the nineties on, um, you know, kind of very traditional NLRB campaigns, uh, usually focused on very small groups of workers, um, inside Walmart, um, stores. Um, you know, through the aughts, we saw kind of more sophistication in building labor community fights alongside worker organization building, um, which is really what Wade coordinated and, and, and um, talked about. It was kind of two joint efforts, um, the Walmart Workers Association, and I think, it, I think it was called Walmart Watch at the time, kind of a broader attempt, um, you know, in some ways to, to build up bigger uh, community support and to think about some of the issues that were not specifically just worker issues, um, things like land use, you know, kind of development, uh, traffic and environmental issues that were caused um, by Walmart, et cetera. I guess just to pause and back up a little bit. So what were those first efforts that were more traditional store by store? You know, how quickly did they fail? Were there successes? Like give people some of that history to the extent you can speak about it. I think one of the most famous examples was, uh, I think it was a UFCW local winning an election of meat cutters um, in a Walmart store. I want to say this was probably 1997. Um, in Texas, um, it was like seven or eight meat cutters. They won an election. Um, the end result of that was Walmart, um, ending, uh, meat cutting in store, um, across the entire United States. And so we saw tactics like that from Walmart where they were willing to shift their entire business strategy, um, to deal with, um, I think some of their kind of more vulnerable points, um, in store. Um, and so we saw kind of more traditional efforts like that um, really running up against a brick wall. And so in the early aughts, you know, I think there was, a, you know, it was a it was a moment when, you know, there was a feeling in some circles in the labor movement that labor was on the march and really figuring out how to organize um, some employers at scale. Um, and so there was a willingness to to try um, some new tactics. And I think some, you know, there's, there's a lot of lessons to learn from defeat, you know, and I think this is something as an organizer, it's, you know, these are kind of truisms, they're very cheesy, but you end up learning a lot more from defeat than from victory. Um, a lot of times, it's, it's a lot easier to figure out what you could have done, how you kind of analyze what happened in a defeat. Um, and so that's really one of the critical reasons I thought it was important to talk to Wade, and really to bring um, some of that conversation together with kind of current efforts at Amazon. 
Yeah. And so before I, I want to quote some of the things Wade said about the specifics of these campaigns, but you mentioned a willingness to experiment. And I think this is something that gets brought up a lot now and somewhat without this historical knowledge of how do we get the unions to take on Amazon? You know, why is it you'll hear this from Amazon workers a lot? Why is it that the unions aren't here? Where is organized labor when things are so bad? And so, I, you know, what was the moment that made unions willing to lay out some resources and personnel towards this effort? Um, and then we can get into sort of, you know, at a certain point, Wade speaks to that willingness um, disappearing under his feet, basically. Um, but what was that moment like? I can't do kind of a three-dimensional picture um, of the whole moment, but I do want to highlight something that I think might provide some lessons for the current moment, where there is there is like an internal political moment inside unions with the recent success of the uh, one-member, one-vote referendum in the UAW, um, the leadership election inside the Teamsters, um, you know, a lot of kind of very visible organizing, a lot of real pushbacks from uh, union memberships. You know, I think of things like, you know, the, the Kellogg workers. And I think a lot of that speaks to what is happening internally in the labor movement. It's important to recognize in 2003 and 2004, there was a split and a schism happening, at least at the top levels of the labor movement. Um, it was kind of the precursor to you know, the SEIU and at the time UFCW and a handful of other unions leaving the AFL-CIO um, to form Change to Win. Um, you can look at that and you can you can put, um, you can ascribe any intention you want um, onto that uh, move. But I do think also like moving toward that, there was a thought that you would free up resources for organizing um, if you functionally didn't have kind of you know, just to be crass about it, the payment of so much in per capita to the AFL-CIO, um, then you would free up more resources that could be used for organizing. At least that was how some of those schisms and, and fractures were sold um, to at least a set um, of us in the labor movement. So I think that's like an important, like there's an internal, there there was kind of internal fracture and there were real question, directional questions. And I think there is, you know, something that doesn't look the same um, but there are some similar forces at play right now in labor um, that might really provide some opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, Wade is somebody who has a long and checkered history in organizing, um, to be totally frank, um, but can see a place to grab some opportunity to try something interesting and different. Um, and so I think that was a time when that was possible. Uh, and and I and so I really do want to you know I think right now is a moment to think about what can be pushed you know it's not about having the greatest strategy or campaign and building it from the bottom up um, some of it is taking the opportunity you know for those who are in positions to really move resources and speak to a big number of people um, what are the opportunities to give to them um, to to help you know resource things that really are going to help workers organize and build sure. Yeah. So I want to get into, so I have this quote from that interview you did with Wade um, that I think is is useful to read in full because I think often these conversations are very abstract. Um, so here's how he de describes what this effort's beginnings look like. So they they focused on a Florida corridor that had, it had I think, a ton of Walmarts um, and there were intentions to expand by the company in that area of Florida. So he says, Obviously, we didn't have a list of Walmart workers. We got the Florida voter list, and then we did a query to pull out all the addresses. At that time, it was populated with addresses and phone numbers, and we pulled out all the ones for families making less than $50,000. We did a simple robo-dialed prompt system where we called people who we thought were likely Walmart workers, 
asking if they had worked for Walmart or had people in their family who worked for Walmart. There might be rights and benefits. If they were eligible, press two. If they were interested, press one. They'd press one, give us their address, and we'd come visit with them. We had about 20 organizers, so every night we would collect all the yeses, put people on the doors. The organizers in that piece of turf drove hundreds of miles, sometimes to do three or four visits, and sometimes were lucky to actually complete any visit. For all of the union drives I've ever done, and there are many, we had the highest percentage of signups on visits that we'd ever had. Somewhere near 63% of the people who were Walmart workers who we actually got to visit would immediately sign up, and they were willing to join and pay dues. They signed up for the Walmart Workers Association. It was a membership card, much like the Acorn membership card. They agreed to pay $10 in dues per month in an open-ended bank draft. And again, there was, this was not a formal union effort. It was clear up front that you know there weren't intentions to file for NLRB elections, so not traditional sort of understanding of what a union campaign looks like. And yet 63% of these people actually in, a, in Florida, you know, not a union stronghold by any measure, um, were willing to spend that money. Again, these are poorly paid people, so that's not a small commitment. Um, so I think I just wanted to read that quote in full because that is really what this looks like. I mean, one of the big questions for when we talk about Amazon is these are incredibly high turnover jobs. They're, these people are hard to locate often. Um, and yet there are very obvious communities and sort of ways to figure out who is working at Amazon. Um, and so it does seem like a useful lesson to get into the nuts and bolts of actually what would be required for these campaigns. Yeah. And I think there are advances in technology over the last 20 years that cut both ways, right? There are ways to think about how we do, how we use social media, how we use the enormous lists of data on all of us that are available for purchase. There's, you know, a hundred times as much data available on you or me as there might have been 20 years ago. Um, but there's also, I think, a bigger challenge in how you contact people as well and the ways in which people are willing to be contacted. So I actually think these are experiments that a lot of organizations that have been doing organizing, particularly around big employers and in industries that have real geographic density. Um, I, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, there are ways to think about, you know, I live in Chicago and there are certainly neighborhoods where, you know, if you walk down a block, there's going to be 10 people who are CNAs who work at an acute care hospital or a nursing or a skilled nursing facility. Um, there are places in Houston, Texas, where, you know, you walk down the street and th there are just densities of people who work in different industries. In Joliet, Illinois, a huge logistics hub. You know, you know that a big chunk of people who are working are working in warehousing and logistics. And so there are certainly ways that a lot of organizations and campaigns have used. And I think part of it is like reminding ourselves of what those tools can be and like never taking something out of like our arsenal and never having any, I mean, like thinking about the tactics that we're going to use. Um, if we want to locate workers, we have to use everything that's possible that's within our power, especially when you're in higher turnover. I mean, part of the challenge is that Amazon has learned from those experiences as well um, and has really, you know, I, th I think taken to another level um, uh, uh, using turnover as, a, as an internal, like, employee turnover is something very different to Amazon than it is to almost any other business that has existed, you know, um, in the, in the modern United States. Yeah. And I mean, I know you don't want to give pronouncements about what is to be done. Uh, but you know, with your decades of experience, so what does that mean for you? Like you, you know, have this experience where we'll go back to the Walmart example of what that campaign looked like. Um, but like, you know, so when we apply this to Amazon, what do you think should be done? 
I, I think one of the questions and one of the reasons why we wanted to approach this from organizing upgrade was because we thought there was a valuable conversation to start between kind of this new generation, a lot of the activists who are in Amazonians United, I think wanting to make linkages with other groups, you know, worker centers around the country um, that are doing work at different parts of the kind of Amazon logistics chain, um, and really kind of opening up that strategic conversation um, to kind of some direct learning. And so I think that, like, I, I don't have a pat answer um, on that. I really wish I did. I should, I should, um, I should try to try to think of like a, a 30 second one. Um, but, I, but I do think it's like part of opening up that strategic conversation and doing that on a broad scale. There are a lot of people who are thinking about Amazon inside the labor movement, adjacent to the labor movement, outside of the labor movement. Um, and I think that it is going to take a lot of experimentation and ways to think about actually learning lessons from all of the kind of history um, that this lays out. You know, I'll also just add, you know, this is, it's a tangent we don't need to go down, but I'd be really interested in bringing in the experience of one of the last large-scale organizing victories in the institutional labor movement, which was uh, Smithfield Foods, thousands of workers um, joining the union um, in Tar Heel, North Carolina at Smithfield Foods, you know, a years and years long fight. Um, but I think there are things to learn from all of them. None of them lay out the, pl the organizing plan for Amazon, but all of them should inform what we're doing. And I think one of the unique things about having that conversation with Amazonians United is to think about there are workers on the shop floor who are discussing this strategy and trying to think about how to approach this kind of unorganizable, huge monstrosity um, and to give them as much fuel as possible, but also to make them think like the strategy that we might've laid out in the last couple of years, we might have to scrap that um, because we're facing, you know, a set of limitations around it. So I, I, you know, part of it is just really putting into the air um, a bigger strategic conversation that I think we can have. Yeah. And so you mentioned that Smithfield union drive. What are the, you know, again, this is the, we're having the conversation now. So, you know, if there are lessons to be taken from that victory, you know, what are they? Describe for people who aren't familiar with how that campaign went, the sort of drawn out protect protracted struggle and then ultimate success. You know, what is that story? I mean, that story was really, I think, an almost two decade long fight um, in a plant of, you know, I, I, the, the exact number, I forget, but I think it's in the five to 6,000 worker range um, at that Smithfield plant. Um, they went through multiple different um, elections um, in which the company kind of used the most vicious anti-union tactics. This was in the nineties um, and lost and through kind of a combined, you know, a bigger corporate social responsibility campaign, a bigger campaign that really involved thinking about the bigger supply chain around the company um, and how to impact it, really thinking about the politics of the area, um, you know, finally won a contested union election on their third try um, after something like 15 years. Um, you know, I think there are lessons to be learned from thinking about how you sustain an organization of workers through really difficult times um, that are, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that time horizon is something we want to lay out for people. Um, but when we start one of these campaigns, we never know what the timeline is going to be. Um, and so I think there are certainly lessons to be learned from how that campaign developed. 
um, and from kind of the length of time that it took for those workers to ultimately win. Um, and so I, you know, part of this is just thinking about what are the campaigns that have happened, you know, with contentious campaigns with with anti-union employers that compared to the workers have limitless resources. And I'm sure there are other examples. I'm sure there are examples from other countries um, as well. And I think this is a start, you know, to that piece of the conversation that that I just feel like has been a little bit missing. Sure. And you said five to 6,000 workers. That sounds right to me as far as what that Smithfield plant was. And that is, of course, basically the exact size of Amazon's warehouses um, tend to be around five to 6,000 for the, f- the bigger fulfillment centers. Um, Bessemer, I think, was 5,800 um, ultimately in that bargaining unit. And that is one thing that, in you know, when I think of the immediate comparison between Walmart and Amazon is somewhat different, is that Amazon, you would think, is a bit easier in that there are more workers under one roof than there are at each individual Walmart store. So that to, that to me has seemed like a significant difference, right, that could go in the favor of the workers themselves, um, this idea that they're all being brought under one roof. I wonder how significant that seems to you. Um, I Well, I think in part because some of the efforts around Walmart that I might be most familiar with, we're really in thinking about the logistics side and the warehousing side. Um, so there's there's kind of a similarity there. Um, you know, one of the reasons that Walmart was always interesting too is because it existed in a specific set of communities. It's a public facing place. You know, um, I, I remember um, at one point, and this is you know in, in 2012 during the Chicago teacher strike. Um, we actually did, along with Warehouse Workers for Justice, a big march um, through a south side of Chicago Walmart um, of teachers and supporters and Walmart warehouse workers, you know, who were organizing and fighting then um, temp workers. Um, but I think that there is, you know, there, there's a there's a real difference between having those re- those like kind of public facing retail establishments and the big warehouses that are closed off from public view. Um, so I actually I, I don't know that there are really convincing pluses or minuses to either one. Um, and part of this is also like a context of, you know, if we had, you know, for instance, the PRO Act and labor law reform, um, there might actually be some benefits to um, having a, uh, uh, the retailers with a public presence that you can really actually make a big kind of show at um, versus the closed doors of a warehouse or a logistics center. Yeah. I mean, certainly for me, it's been, it was a little bit surprising when Amazon warehouse working conditions started getting so much media coverage because this was one thing Amazon always had was that the consumer didn't see those workers right at all. At least at Walmart, their, their stores there were workers there. And also this was a place consumers were actually entering, right? People were there. This is not ever happening at Amazon. And yet it broke through, right? In part, I think, because workers kept insisting on trying to get their voices heard on this. And eventually they did very much break through, right? To the point where everyone knows now that Amazon warehouses suck and yet they still suck, right? It hasn't changed. Um, I want to go back to another thing Wade says. So sort of moving up his timeline of how this campaign is going. He says, I went to brother Hanson, Joe Hanson, the head of UFCW. And I said, look, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is a thousand people have signed up in a little over six months. The response has been great. There's some level of organization in 32 stores, but we've gone as far as we can expand the list and you have to decide. I think this could work if you were willing to make a commitment to get up to 100,000, 200,000 members on this kind of strategy and to spend some money to do it. And his response was pretty much, Wade, you've done a good job, really interesting what you've done. And that was the last time he signed a check for the campaign. 
<laughs> so <laughs> he's you know it's a he's a fantastic storyteller and has an amazing memory and so that's a part of that's a part of that interview and you know i'm i'm one of the things this makes me think and as we think about it in the context of say the teamsters and amazon we also have to be thoughtful about where and the reasons for investment from any institution that's going to actually put resources behind this kind of organizing. I think it's frankly fair to say for, um, you know, those funders who might be funding other organizing at Amazon, you know, I don't know. Uh, Part of the question is like, what is the leverage you're trying to build? Is that leverage actually against this company? Is a part of it, you know, there's always going to be an internal political question, um, particularly in unions, you know, um, that for the UFCW, you could imagine that so many of their members needed to actually see a serious attempt at organizing Walmart. Um, but there might have been a cost-benefit analysis that said, actually resourcing this at the scale that's going to put us in a position like dumping more resources is going to put us on the hook for 10 times more. Um, and, and that, you know, sometimes it's the case that what you're trying to do is really protect your own politics. Um, and so you can see, you know, I'm not trying to make any assumption about that either. Um, nor am I frankly trying to make any judgment about that. Like there are a lot of reasons um, why unions, union leaders and other organizations make decisions about what their targets are, what their strategies and how they move. Um, But I think it's like a a, a lot more deeply textured than thinking about how do we attack this huge employer? Um, And there can be a lot of other interests at play. Um, And, you know, I think internal political dynamics, just like I talked about some of the broader, like internal labor union dynamics, those things are important things to think about. Um, When we think, I think, especially, you know, on the left, um, as people who want to see this organizing happen, who think it's important, it's important for us to understand the reality of where these decisions are going to come from, and to have as clear eye to view as possible um, about why those decisions might get Mm -hmm. made. You know, our analysis just needs to be thorough. Sure. And so you mentioned the Teamsters as sort of occupying at least a a somewhat similar role in relation to Amazon now as that campaign at Walmart. So, you know, the Teamsters at their most recent convention committed to spending quite a lot of time and energy and money on organizing Amazon. Um, I think they now have an organizing Amazon division, their new leadership that won the sort of reform backed slate. made that a big part of their campaign saying that Amazon needed to be taken seriously and organized. And so I'm curious what your assessment of what that effort going forward looks like. It's a big unknown, right? It's very hard, even if you're speaking to rank and file Teamsters, as I try to as much as possible to know really what that is going to look like and how it's going already. I'm personally going to give a lot of grace to this new leadership in trying to figure out how to attack this, because I think side by side with the Amazon question is the 2023 UPS contract campaign, and obviously their broader kind of membership in the trucking, logistics, and transportation industry. I would also say that some of the energy around Amazon has come from some locals in their public sector division, um, right, which are really thinking about how how is... Amazon negatively impacting revenue and funding for public services? And how are we thinking about a set of other questions layered onto it? So I think it's important to, like, we have to balance all of those things. Like, an organizing drive at Amazon, which at its heart, in some ways, is a big logistics company, um, is really about, like, that industry as a whole, and how do we win the, the 
biggest gains and the most control and self-determination for workers in that industry. And so that has to work side by side with how they're going to approach UPS, how they're going to approach organizing at other non-union um, logistics carriers and companies. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I think it's I think there's a lot of really hopeful signs um, kind of with the new leadership. There's a lot of signs, frankly, just from a lot of leaders in the Teamsters, really at least even making the rhetorical jump over the last couple of years, um, you know, to, to taking this fight on. Um, and, and I think it remains to be seen, like, what is the depth of importance that the members of the Teamsters are going to put on it? Like, what are the ways in which, um, you know, different segments of that union are going to push? But I do think, you know, ideally, it's kind of an all-encompassing strategic push. And the goal is not, you know, simply organizing Amazon. I mean, I have other thoughts on Amazon and and how it's developing. And, I've, you know, it's one of the reasons I, I've been really interested in listening to this podcast, kind of reading what you're writing and a lot of other smart people are writing. Um, none of us really know the future of Amazon. We don't know exactly what they're trying to accomplish. Um but what they're trying to accomplish is not to be the biggest employer in the world. Um, and a lot of these companies are really trying to remove workers um, from the equation in a lot of ways. And so I think we've also got to be thinking, like, as we construct these ways of thinking that are as broad as possible and that, that take in all the complexities, um, I think we've got to be thinking toward the future, too, um, and, and where the, the, the people who run the show are actually trying to move toward. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to hear you expand on these thoughts about, so with Amazon's warehouses, the conversation very quickly comes to automatic automation, robots. Um, I always feel compelled to note that the warehouses with more robots have higher rates of injury for the people. Um, People seem to think that robots make things safer. Not always. Um, But as far as where Amazon's going, right, I mean, it doesn't want to keep it. Even its executives have said that they're afraid of running out of low-wage workers, right? They are literally hiring all of America. Um, And so they're given their turnover. They're really, they they see the writing on the wall. And so that's a question. There's also the fact that, of course, much of Amazon's profits come from things that are not labor intensive. So like the the cloud computing arm, AWS. Um, And so I'm curious, you know, from a labor perspective, like how do you what are your sort of broader sort of strategic thinking about what this looks like? Right. About what the future of worker leverage at Amazon might be and where these efforts could go, given sort of that dynamic. I would say I think part of this goes toward like how do we develop some of what Wade initially talked about around developing this strategy where you were identifying workers and at the same time you were doing things like inserting yourself into the land use issues and trying to predict where, you know, Walmart was trying to expand to, that you were thinking about kind of a, a you know, doing this kind of 360 degree strategy. You know, the, the diff, one of the big differences, I think, is that we need, um, we need to be building organizations that can actually act in that way. This is not about, you know, a small group of smart organizers having a smart strategy and getting the right people to fund it, which frankly is what so much, um, you know, it, it, it's like, a, it's a way of existing in the world. Um, that I don't think gets us to the scale of organizing that we need, because what we're actually talking about is a much bigger systemic change, right? We're talking about ways to create democratic control of institutions. We're talking about ways to make a much bigger political and cultural and economic shift at the same time. And so I like, it's always about, to me, it's like about like expanding that field of conflict and about thinking about what is the role 
you know, kind of workers, the disruption that workers can take on, the organizations they build. We've seen the ways in which those things can calcify into institutions that solely exist to protect themselves, you know, and will protect workers too, but in the service of protecting the institution. Um, and that I think there's a lot of people right now, more people than at any point in the time I've been organizing, who I think are really agitating and building towards something very different, right? That we're thinking about something much bigger. And so I, I realize when I answer these questions, sometimes it can, I can feel like I'm not answering it or like I'm eluding the question and you, you can nod at me. Um, and I kind of, you know, in some ways I am, but I do think like there is, you know, the question of, you know, nationalization versus anti-monopoly action, the questions of like how, you know, how Amazon's, how Amazon has created its own center of gravity around political economy and how that can be shifted into a democratic use. I think those are real questions. It's not about when are they going to bring in the robots and how many robots they're going to bring in, right? And I think you said, like, it is, it's true. It's it's like talking about self-driving cars as like the problem. Um, that's not the problem. These are experiments that these people use on the path toward figuring out a much bigger question. And so to me, it's how do you create how do we have kind of democratic organization of workers? How do we have communities fighting for the things that they need, both in their tax money, not getting sucked out by Amazon, their climate not being destroyed by Amazon, um, their family members and friends being killed by Amazon? Um, and how do we think about using that to create a much bigger um, public fight and much bigger kind of like institution building than like purely a worker organization that's there um, to, to fight about kind of conditions on the job um, because we, we need to be in a position of, of changing, you know, with as the world is changing and needs to change, we have to get in front of that. Yeah, no, I mean, there are definitely, I definitely have episodes planned of like about nationalization, anti-monopoly stuff. And I, you know, I use Amazon explicitly. I think it's just a useful tool or object of analysis for a socialist, right? Because it's, you know, when it affects everyone, it makes it very easy, puts a face to all sorts of trends and dynamics that are otherwise sometimes sp spoken of very abstractly on the left. Um, so that's certainly where I, my view of Amazon is, you know, I'm very prone to being pessimistic. I think anybody in the labor movement w in the United States, at least, would have to be somewhat unhinged to to speak always optimistically. That said, you know, the, the sort of types of organizations and movements that are growing up very quickly around Amazon and at Amazon, to me, are promising, right? They aren't enough, but they're exactly what needs to be done, right? So whether we're thinking about the Athena Coalition, which, you know, I had their director on the first episode, which is, you know, sort of takes every type of group that is affected by Amazon from worker organizations to, you know, uh, climate activists and community activists to immigrant rights organizations, so on and so forth. Even small business owners, of course, who are massively getting a cut in their profits by selling through Amazon. I think it's something like 33% of their sales go to Amazon as the med the middleman. Um, so of course, that is exactly the type of coalition that I would think needs to happen. You know, also we had on a recent episode, people who were involved in that global Black Friday protest, similarly speaking explicitly about thinking at the level of capital's operations, which is global. Um, building exact direct ties and comparisons between garment workers in Bangladesh and, you know, warehouse workers in Bessemer. So, I, you know, those are the type of things, if it were up to me, which, of course, thank God it is not, um, would be, you know, exactly what I would envision resistance to Amazon starting to look like, right? Broadening 
out from a worker base to what the political interventions would have to be as well, right? Whether it's around taxing, whether it's around nationalization. Um, but I certainly don't have the answers to those things, right? Um, right. And and yes, I guess you're you're saying neither do you. Um, but certainly, it's I think it's something that people in the labor movement do have to think about as we talk about Amazon. Is how you go from this thing we all agree with, which is that it starts with worker power and workers have unique leverage to interrupt the functions of these companies to how does that build up to the political level to the extremely serious and massive political changes that would have to happen um, to to rein in Amazon and any other companies like like Amazon. Yeah, and I, I think one way one way to think about it is to think about to think about this, and, and maybe it's almost easier at an Amazon to think about it beyond collective bargaining. Like what is, what is, what does worker power mean um, in that industry and what would really, and I really think about, you know, and I'm, 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 uh, I'm biased as I've been kind of involved with warehouse workers for justice for many years um, here in Illinois, uh, a worker center that was really built around this logistics hub where Amazon is a huge um, presence where, you know, we, we also saw the limitations of what you can do with, with kind of like really militant work stoppages and other actions at Walmart. Um, we saw Walmart willing to shut down a warehouse for an entire day and a half because we announced we were going to march on it um, while there was a, like a relatively small strike happening inside the warehouse. They were willing to lose, I think, like $6 million for the day out of that warehouse to just shut it down um, and not deal with us. Um, interrupt, you know, they were willing to interrupt the supply chain on their own um, to to prevent us from, from having that impact. And, you know, I think, again, like about the linkages, and I think not just with Walmart and Amazon, but again, like, what are the other efforts that have existed in modern times? Um, they're never going to be things at the scale of Amazon, because I think Amazon has taken a lot of what Walmart did, and it, it's multiplied it. You talked about it, right? Amazon Web Services. There's a lot of other things that Amazon does um, that have innovated far beyond a Walmart or, or kind of like a category killer um, of a corporation um, like has existed in the past. Um, but I think there's like a really rich conversation to be had. And I think we're going to have to learn all of those lessons together collectively um, there are so many kind of points of optimism and points of pessimism that you could look at um, with Amazon. And I can swing wildly, you know, in the same conversation um, from one um, poll to another. Um, but I think it's like it's a it's a necessary conversation. Um, and it's also an important conversation, frankly, for us to think about what is the thing that comes next? Um, because Amazon, none of these companies exist forever, you know. Um, and so who is going, what is going to be, what terrifying conglomeration um, is something that is bigger than what Amazon is today? Um, and I think it would, you know, this goes into the abstract, certainly. Um, but I think, you know, I was, when you were talking a little bit, Alex, I was thinking about, oh, can we, like, is, is um, thinking about organizing, thinking about Amazon, thinking about the, you know, SARS Russia and the revolution, like thinking about some of these kind of epochal changes, it's actually not ridiculous to try to think about these through a similar lens or to try to learn similar things um, from different efforts. Um, so I like I, I really appreciate kind of what you've been doing here. Um, I mean, it's this this like this is going to require like all of us actually being engaged in it. I also do want to make a little, and this is you know I do a bunch of work and have done you know through my time in the labor movement, you know, in coalition, the bargaining for the common good network, 
And I think a lot of that has been focused in the past around public sector bargaining. How are we going to bring communities essentially to the table in bargaining and win things in the points where we have leverage? Can you explain to people what the Bargaining for Common Good Network is? Yeah, it's it's essentially an effort to advance, you know, we have a lot of work that happens in coalition with labor and community. You will have a you know, traditionally uh if you're going into a campaign, you might call on community to support. You might call on a group of progressive pastors and interfaith leaders, you know, to come with you um to do an action on management. You might ask people to join you on the picket line. And bargaining for the common good at its core is really deepening, systematizing those relationships. And at its core, a lot of the work up to now has been, how do we bring community demands to the bargaining table, to the place where unions have clear leverage? And how do you develop coherently and concretely demands together that really, frankly, um, union members are willing to go on strike over and that community members are willing um, to stand up in that fight next to union members. So the place we've seen it most visible is in some of the big city teacher strikes and campaigns of the last several years from Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, um, St. Paul, you know, a host of others. Those are some of the places where I think a lot of that work was developed the most deeply. Um, but there's a lot of places where essentially you said, you know, whether it's legal or not, teachers are going on strike not ju- not over wages and benefits, but we're going to go on strike over bilingual supports for students, you know, around supports for special ed, um, around class sizes and conditions um, and things like that. Um, and so right now, you know, I, th- I think a lot of that has been how do we think about that from an organizing framework and how do we think about um, worker campaigns, particularly at kind of like big employers, um, but employers big and small. And how do we think about bringing in other forces in the community, not just as supporters, not just in solidarity, but really think about how to develop strategy together and how to build durable organization that can actually help us make a leap um, and help concretize victories, especially if we're not going to win a union election, if we're not going to win a collective bargaining agreement, but how can how can kind of community organizations and actors be involved in in that whole process? Um, and and I think Amazon is you know one place. I think in so, with some of these big employers, it's a place to really think about exploring some of these tactics and strategies um, for how we build different kinds of worker organization. Alex, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me. Is there anything else you want to touch on that we haven't discussed yet? One thing I would love to, to and, and I, I don't have the right now kind of off the top of my head, the knowledge, but, and I've mentioned to you, this to you in the past, but, you know, there was an effort that the UFCW funded to organize Amazon warehouses in the year 2000 when I believe there were only seven Amazon warehouses in the entire country. Um, It was probably six years or seven years after Amazon was founded. And it was almost 100% of books. It was an online bookseller um, at that point. And part of that question is really like, what would be different if the UFCW had actually followed through, if that campaign had been successful? Um, And if there had been worker organization built in those warehouses, um, you know, what would exist now? And that's a little bit of my kind of what I said a few minutes ago, too, about thinking forward to what is the next Amazon um, and who is out there. Um, and I think it also goes back to one of the I think one of the points that Wade made at some point in this very long kind of three part interview that could have been five times as long, I think. I think one of the points he might not have made it explicitly, but, you know, there was a lot of success in blocking Walmart's expansion in specific places. Um, but it's a classic case of 
um, it's hard to figure out how to claim victory when there's nothing tangible there to claim. Um, and I think that's something for us to chew on and think about as we think as a movement um, about how to think about victories that are things for us to build on. Um, because I believe that to be the case. I think there were some really, really enormous wins, both in Florida and in other countries in kind of blocking um, Walmart's expansion at the time, um, that it's really hard to think about because their expansion, you know, never happened. And so we can't see what the impact um, was. We can't see it and feel it. Um, but that's something that's kind of on my mind as we walk out of this conversation. But I really appreciate this conversation, Alex. Yeah. And if anyone listening was involved in that UFCW drive at Amazon, if you happen to work at one of those very rare six or seven, I think, warehouses at the time, absolutely get in touch with me. Um, I would love to talk. Um, so thanks again, Alex. Really, really appreciate you taking off the time. All right. Thanks, Alex. Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Primer, and thanks as ever to my producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Jacobin. A reminder that if you're so inclined, you can support the show by subscribing to the Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Primer Podcast. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Bye.